Thank you for listening to the BJJ Brick Podcast. We'll be bringing you Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and good times. We hope to flatten your Jiu-Jitsu learning curve, help you get the most out of your grappling ability, and meet your goals both on and off the mat. Welcome back, my friends, to the BJJ Brick Podcast. This is episode 255. Uh, I'm here with my good buddy Byron and my good buddy uh, Gary. How are you guys doing today? Oh, we're doing fabulous. Uh, how about you, Byron? Doing good. Uh, Gary and I just got done getting our hair did. We're looking fabulous, according to Gary. Definitely. You know, I got my hair highlighted and, uh, you know, Byron uh, actually had some hair drawn on him. So uh, we're doing well. <laughs> they used the wrong color. Yeah, they use yeah, gray. But I, I think it really brings out the sparkle in your eyes, though, Byron. Thanks, Gary. That means a lot to me. This episode means a lot to me. Uh, our friend Rolly Delgado uh, recommended Mitch Hall. And man, thank you, Rolly. It was great talking with Mitch. He's got an interesting story. Kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, Jiu Jitsu back in the day when uh, things socially were a little different in Jiu Jitsu and, and some of the marketing and ideas behind Jiu Jitsu. Uh, weren't as transparent as they usually are today. And he's got man, cool stuff to talk about. And interesting stuff to talk about is probably more accurate. But uh, And then we, of course, talk about jiu-jitsu overall and, and his story. And man, uh, It's great talking with Mitch Hall. So that's coming up in a little bit. But if you are new to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I want to give you a quick recommendation. Uh, clearly, you listen to podcasts and uh, do, doing things in audio format is pretty simple. You can do it with you do pretty much anything that you don't need your ears for. So if you're you know mowing the lawn or painting or cooking or any of those activities, it could be driving. Uh, you could be checking out your first year in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu audiobook. It's made by me. It's about two and a half hours long. It's got six chapters covering everything from finding the right gym, which uh, Mitch could have used that chapter to help you know, investigate the gyms around him a little bit better. You'll hear about that in the interview. All the way to doing a tournament. And I know tournaments aren't right for everybody, especially in the first year. But if you want to, that's absolutely fine. And uh, I'll help get you there and make sure you get the most out of the tournament. Uh, win, lose, or draw. Uh, we want you to, to get something from that and to learn something. And that's what the book is for. Uh, get that first year under your belt uh, and have success, you know, enjoying the process and getting better at Jiu-Jitsu. It's eleven ninety nine, two and a half hours long. Check it out. There'll be a link in the show notes. There we go, gentlemen. Your first year in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Of Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, <laughs> Man, a hard time here with the title. Yep. yep. Hey, uh, you. this is a point of the show where we have the off-the-mat lesson, where we bring something off the mat or on the mat and, you know, take it to the mat or off the mat, vice versa, or whatever you want to say there. But um, normally, I'm never the one who has one. And uh, But this week, uh, I, I just started thinking about something here not, not too long ago, is uh, my neighbor across the street, one day I get up in the morning, and I open my garage door, and uh, I get ready to go to work. And I see he's selling his house. You know, that kind of comes as a surprise. I hadn't heard about it. Uh, a neighbor that I you know, lives right across the street that I talk to every now and then. And uh, see, he's got a for sale by owner uh, sign out there, which basically means he's going to sell it himself. And 
Right now, I do work in banking, so I, I do know uh, houses in Wichita go real quick. Um, you know, I've known a lot of people who've put their house up and within six hours here recently have sold their house. And that's actually pretty common. Most people sell it really quick within a week uh, for full price or, or maybe even more. So it's a, it's a good time to uh, sell your house if you're selling. Uh, but... What's kind of crazy is uh, yesterday as I come home from work, and it's now been probably three weeks, and uh, his house is not sold. And so today, or yesterday, I come home from work, and he's got a different sign on there. He now <laughs> has a, he now has an agent selling his house. And it's been one day now, and um, I did notice today when uh, I came back from Jiu-Jitsu that somebody was already looking at the house, and I had not seen one person look at the house and basically it makes me think about jiu-jitsu and we can train jiu-jitsu i can get some youtube booklets and youtube videos and buy some magazines and and buy some books and uh try to teach myself and i'm probably not gonna do very very well you know i'm gonna learn some stuff and you know i think uh basically it brings me back that we need a, a very good teacher you know do some research find a, a teacher and, and uh, an instructor isn't a good instructor doesn't necessarily just mean they've won world championships you know uh, there's people who've never won a, a major tournament uh, maybe never even entered a tournament who are great instructors but um, definitely check out uh, you know instructors you know check out their learning style but you know it just makes me think that we need a knowledgeable, articulate, uh, some guy who can teach very well, guy or girl. Um, so we need a professional as an instructor in jiu-jitsu as we need a professional to uh, help us sell our house where, uh, you know, my neighbor wasn't having any luck doing it. Yeah, that's that's a good point, Gary. Uh, we all know people that come from the jiu-jitsu lineage of Googling or YouTubing how to do jiu-jitsu. Um, but yeah, definitely experts help. I would also liken jujitsu a little bit to the whole process of buying a house. You usually have a, a lender and you have an agent and you have a home inspector. And, and there's oftentimes a lot of people that are involved. And I think your jujitsu will progress even quicker and be fuller if, if your jujitsu looks like that as well. You have your head instructor. You have a couple of guys on the mat that are a little bit ahead of you that are mentors. You go to some tournament or some, uh, seminars all these things are part of the process and, and and it works so much better than just trying to get everything from within yourself yeah definitely great point joe and let me just say also gary it was great to hear you bring an off the mat lesson this week thank you you're welcome i you know uh, i always joke that my mind never works like that i, I guess maybe I, I don't sit there and smell the roses and think about stuff like i should and uh um but yeah i was trying real hard to think of something and that one just popped into my head when I opened the garage door one day and, and, you know, saw that. And then all of a sudden I see the, you know, I come home from work yesterday and I see it and I was like, man, how has he not sold it? And we talk about that in jujitsu all the time. You, you need a quality instructor if uh, you want to perform your best. Look at what he's trying to do. He's probably trying to save money on not uh, paying commission costs to realtor. But, you know, you could, he could have struggled and, and, and eventually sold his house and like, you know, several months or six months down the road, but he's time is a factor in that. So he's continuing to pay his his monthly bills for the house and that sort of thing. 
And at a certain point in time, he just saved money by paying somebody to sell his house for him. So, it, yeah, you could figure out some jujitsu uh, by just self-research or whatever. But, man, if you want to do a private lesson with somebody and they say, hey, here's your problem. You're doing this. You might have figured that problem out eventually. Maybe you wouldn't have. But to have that expert eye come in and say, "Here's you're totally passing the guard this way and you, your hand needs to be like this and control them here and feel this. I want you to, to experience this. And then it'll click for you. And it, having a great instructor will save you time in how long it takes to get good at Jisoo. Having a good real estate agent will save you time. Uh, and clearly he wants to get as far away from Gary as possible. Time is a factor. Yeah, I'd, I'd be selling my house too. <laughs> He's just going to walk away from it. He doesn't care as long as he can get away from me. <laughs> I wouldn't blame him one bit there. <laughs> See, uh, he has all these, he can't figure out Gary because uh, you know, several times a week, men show up at Gary's house, go in, <laughs> the exit all sweaty, sometimes not even wearing, wearing shirts anymore, <laughs> tights, <laughs> yeah. uh, little shorty shorts. Sometimes and they come out with black eyes. They invite yeah. him over, but nobody nobody wants to come over there and see. And you know, yeah. yeah. So can't blame him. Gary's creeped him out. <laughs> I creep a lot of people out there. Definitely. Hey, you know what? Uh, selling a house and fishing have in common? I do not. They are both topics that will be discussed on this show. <laughs> I think it's a luck. <laughs> That's a good our, one. Our quote of the week. Many men go fishing all their lives without knowing that it is not fish they are after. That's by Henry David Thoreau. Is that how you pronounce yeah, that close you enough? You yeah, can, you you can David go- go- Google hey, him. In fact, I did Google him, actually, and his uh, wiki, I was reading it, and I actually thought I was reading about Gary for a minute. It says that Henry David Thoreau uh, was an American essayist, yep. poet, philosopher, abolitionist naturalist tax resistor a development development critic surveyor historian and a leading transcendentalist i mean i really thought they were talking about (laughs) 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 well i really think he transcended uh the, the thoughts of his time, I think, is what they're getting at. And I really thought they were talking about Gary. I think uh, Andrew David Thoreau. you think about me that way. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote the, a book uh, called Walden, and that's probably his most famous uh, work. I didn't read it in junior high, but I remember being assigned to read that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, of all the quotes we talk about, though, this one, I, I think, relates to jiu-jitsu so good because most of us... Uh, started jujitsu because we wanted to learn how to fight or, or we saw some competitions and we wanted to compete and or, or we wanted to get in better shape we have all these other reasons but most people that are still on the mats five years later those are still part of why they go but for most people i think you go because it, it's just become such a big part of your life and that's where your friends are and and that's where you get to put aside your your troubles for the day and, and just be distracted for a while and I, I really think that after a few years there's so much more about jujitsu than jujitsu yeah joe you hit the nail right on the head and uh i was basically thinking the same thing i started jujitsu because i watched hoist gracie and uh i just thought it was incredible and i wanted to be like hoist gracie and be able to beat people up and uh and that's why i started that's why you know i i I wanted to learn these techniques and 
now it's really the the social scene. It's uh, hanging out with a bunch of good people, laughing, smiling. You know, my stress lowers. You know, all the benefits. And you know, Byron talks about that in his uh, first year of G- BJJ. It's uh, you know all the benefits of jujitsu. And and one thing we talk about all the time is we need to have fun. You know, we need to be smiling when we're on the mat. And uh, whenever I'm uh, in that jujitsu room, I'm smiling. I'm having a great time. And uh, I, I don't really care about beating anybody up. I mean, I've already beat up Byron three times, and uh, I I'm, feel good about myself after that. So uh, I, I'm, I'm good. You're good. Uh, this, the, you guys are totally right on this. It's not uh, going to jiu-jitsu to learn how to fight. After a certain amount of time, uh, for jiu-jitsu purposes, really after a few months, if you want to push it all the way to blue belt, that's fine. Once you're blue belt, you know how to fight. You should anyway. You know how to defend yourself in a lot of like one-on-one situations, especially if you can get to the ground. It's going to be super easy. After a while, jiu-jitsu becomes how to beat somebody who is also good at jiu-jitsu. And they're not going to move in in the ways that you're 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 working out how to fight. Uh, like, hey, Gary's going to pass my guard. He's going to do this and then that. I know this. And he knows that. I know that. You know, like, but somebody on the street... They don't know how to pass my guard, so it's a different playing field. So the idea that you, you keep going for 30 years to do just to, to, to fight really well, that's – sure, you'll still do great in a fight, but after a while, you're, you're, you get good at fighting people who are doing jiu-jitsu. And after a while, you'll find other benefits. And I think for a lot of us, like Gary was talking about, it's the social aspect. That's You go there because it's fun, and people are, are there that, that you're enjoying being with. and. And I've uh, been trying to work on a book about fitness. And a lot of it is the idea that it, not just jujitsu, but there are some activities out there that you could do. You could make friends, at, you know, that also do these activities, like in a social group setting. And you could enjoy going to work out with your friends. Even if you're sitting in the office, you're 350 pounds, you have no friends that work out. You could get a group of friends that work out, but the problem is they're already working out. They're already doing this activity. And, you know, for a lot of us, it's jujitsu. So if you could leave your area and go to jujitsu, make those people your friends, you get to go hang out with buddies several times a week and do a physical activity with a side benefit of getting in shape. Like, you can't, it's hard to explain how great that is because most people don't like to work out because it's boring, it's hard, it's frustrating, it, it's uncomfortable. And all that goes away when you're having a blast, when you're smiling the entire process of exercise. Uh, I think jiu-jitsu is a great uh, process for that. And most people go fishing. You know, when you're a little kid and you learn how to fish, you want to catch a fish. When you get older, you might want to share how to fish with somebody. You might want to just enjoy the peace and quiet of of the fishing. You might want to get out of the house for the morning or afternoon. You might want to be out on the water and, and enjoy some cold beverages all day long. Uh, there are a lot of different reasons to fish, uh, not being much of a fisherman myself. <laughs> but catching the fish, if that's the only thing you're after, that's fine. But most people don't. I mean, like I said, they go their whole life and not know that they're doing something other than fishing out there. Yeah, you know, actually, I'm pretty sure this was a rewrite. I think the first time he tried to introduce this quote to his friends, he said, many men go fishing all their lives without realizing they just need a little break from the wife. And, and they said, they said, they said, that's not going to fly. You're going to have to rework that. 
<laughs> Your wife's not going to be happy with that. Well, and, you know, uh, the wives like it when the guys go fishing because they get a break as well. That's right. Yeah, and I mean, that's a, and then, you know, then you see uh, the wives working out with the husband. You know, I see Byron and Becky working out all the time, and, and I know that's uh, great for your relationship, too. Well, but, she's uh, not getting a break from me like she needs. <laughs> yeah. Well, she's got work for that. And, uh, but, but I mean, it's, uh, it, it really is kind of a break. You know, you're, you're at a break from, you know, the, the stressors of daily life. You're, you guys are there, you know, working out, you know, getting a strong mind, strong body, uh, being flexible and, uh, and, uh, you know, just doing great stuff. But, um, I, I think this quote is perfect, and it's just like last week's quote. Like you said, it's not necessarily a jiu-jitsu or a sports quote, but, man, it fits perfectly into jiu-jitsu there. I mean, I went to jiu-jitsu looking to catch a piranha or a shark, and I ended up with a clownfish, and really that's probably what I wanted was that clownfish. I just didn't know it. Oh, you're clever, Gary. <laughs> yeah, you're clever. <laughs> hey, at least Joe understands. Gary is a clownfish. Yep. I am a clownfish. But, you know, actually, before jiu-jitsu, that would have made me, before jiu-jitsu, you know, had helped me out, you know, make my mind a lot sounder and lower my stress level and everything, I probably would have been wanting to fight Byron for calling me a clownfish. Now, I just laugh it off. It's no big deal. Keep on clowning. Well, since, since you yep. all have been such good buddies since you started jiu-jitsu, I thought you were talking about Byron when you said that, Gary. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> The bromance continues. There you go. <laughs> well, let's switch gears a little bit here on this 10-speed bicycle and get Mitch Hall onto the podcast. Do they still make 10-speed bicycles? He is the most interesting grappler in the world. He once grappled a polar bear to test out his bear hug. He once choked out an opponent using only his Wi-Fi connection. When he models for key companies, he uses only his bad side. He only gets ringworm on his ring finger. I don't always listen to podcasts, but when I do, I prefer the BJJ Brick podcast. Stay listening, my friends. All right, my friends, I'm happy to bring Mitch Hall to the BJJ Brick Podcast. Mitch, welcome to the show. Thank you, man. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, you come highly recommended from a, a close friend of the podcast, uh, Rolly Delgado, and uh, we have a, a variety of topics to cover today. But, uh, Mitch, if you could do me a favor and just kind of introduce yourself a little bit as far as uh, your jiu-jitsu history and kind of uh, who you are and what you're up to. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a black belt under Rolly Delgado. Um, I was promoted to black belt, uh, in January of 2018. So January of this year. Um, so I'm a fairly new black belt, actually. This was supposed to be my, uh, my first year competing at black belt actually. Um, but I started training jujitsu in 2000, in June of 2007. Um, I'm originally from Louisiana. So I started out training jujitsu in uh, a town called West Monroe, Louisiana, which is right outside of Shreveport. So it's, uh, probably about an hour east of Shreveport under a guy named uh, John Blanche, who's a, a black belt um, under Crone Gracie now. But at the time, he was a black belt under Professor Alan Hopkins. And so, uh, yeah, I've, so now about a, almost 11 and a half years, give or take, that I've been training now. Um, and I spent eight years 
of that uh, training um, under the Gracie flag. In the last three, I've been training under Grapple Fight Team with uh, Rolly Delgado at Westside MMA in Little Rock. Um, but as far as how I, I got into jiu-jitsu, I think my situation was kind of different um, than I. So I, I think that there's three kind of generations that are happening in jiu-jitsu right now. And uh, I, I've kind of put myself in that second generation. So the first generation is like all the guys who got started in like the nineties, you know, whenever uh, those guys who say, Oh, I got into MMA or I got into jiu-jitsu because I saw UFC one and I saw what hoist did. And it was amazing. Um, and then you had generation two, which was when MMA exploded and the big names on the card were like Ken Shamrock, Matt Hughes, George St. Pierre, you know, that was kind of introducing this next generation. And then the third generation is, is whatever the guys are doing now, I guess. But, um, so for me, I was kind of in that second generation because I didn't get turned on to jujitsu by the UFC or, or anything like that. In fact, um, it was a friend of mine. Um, I was, so I've been in the, the air force for 16 years and, um, I was going through a school, uh, in San Antonio, Texas in 2006. So the summer of 2006 and one of the guys in the class, he was kind of wanting to get together for the weekend, get the whole class together and just go out and have a couple of drinks or whatever. And he was like, hey, there's an MMA fight going on at Hooters. This is back whenever Hooters was like putting all the fights on. Yeah. Pay 10 bucks, you know. And um, now it's, you know, back then Hooters was like really the only thing that was doing anything. Um, now Buffalo Wild Wings and Hooters and, you know, Twin Peaks, everybody's always scrambling fight and you have to get online and try to see who's showing the fights. And it's a big rigmarole now. But back then you just, just went to Hooters. And um, so. I was like, yeah, man, that's cool. There's going to be beer and chicks wearing Hooters outfits. So that sounds like a plan. And uh, at this point, I, I didn't know what MMA was. I didn't know what cage fighting was. I didn't, you know, I knew none of this. And um, <clears throat> and so we we get together and we get to Hooters. And uh, the fight was Ken Shamrock versus Tito Ortiz, 70, whatever. You know, they fought like 500 times. And so it was one of like their second or third times fighting. And, um, I didn't know who either one of those guys were either. I had no clue who these guys were, but we walk in and we walk into the bar area and it's just this tons of people, just all these people. And they're all wearing those full contact fighter hoodies, you know, um, which I don't even think is a brand anymore, but it was a huge brand at the time. Um, and so I kind of see these guys and I'm like, man, you know, these guys look like tough guys. These are, these are some alpha dudes, you know? And, um, now if I walk in that same place, I would look around and be like, man, look at these dudes, you know, but back then I was just like, wow. Um, and so the fight started and I started watching this and I was like, oh my God, what is this? Like, what is going like, holy cow. And, uh, so I started asking my buddy, I was just like, what, what is this? Like, what, this is a sport. And, uh, and he was like, yeah, man, it's called MMA. You know, this is the ultimate fighting championship and you should look up these guys. And he told me to look up Matt Hughes. And so I did. And I kind of went down that track. I was kind of going down this MMA track. And, um, and that was kind of really what sparked my interest. Uh, long story short, um, a couple of months later, I, I get to Ruston, Louisiana, which is where my recruiting office was because I was going to recruiting school at the time for the air force. And I spent the last three years on active duty as an air force recruiter. And, um, so I get to my first duty station in Ruston and, um, I just immediately start looking for an MMA gym. Cause I was like, I, I got to try this. And, um, start looking and there's nothing in the area at all. And so, um, my mom 
who lives out in the middle of nowhere uh, in Louisiana, I was visiting her one day and I was coming back home and I see this wooden hand painted sign on a, on a tree. It's just like off on, on the side of the highway. And it just says, uh, jujitsu and it has a phone number and that's it. It was like this white sign. It was hand painted up with red paint and it just said jujitsu and it was spelled J U J I T S U. So I was like, Oh wow. It's like God sending me this message. I should <laughs> definitely call this number. And, um, so I called it and, uh, this guy answered the phone and I told him I want, I want to do jujitsu. He's like, perfect. Let's set up a free lesson. You come in, it'd be great. So I said, okay. Um, so now the reason I tell this part of the story is because this is not where I continued to train. This is just where I began, like my first introduction to a jujitsu class. And, um, so where my office was, so I lived 30 minutes away from my home. This gym was 30 minutes on the other side. So it was an hour from my house. So essentially when I was going to go try this class, I was going to commute an hour and a half to go train. And, um, and so I, I show up at this guy's class and, uh, we end up going over some techniques and, and he taught the Americana and I was like, wow, that's, that's, so what I want to do. And so I was like, where do I sign? And he goes, oh, great. We offer one year contracts. And, uh, I was like, how much is it? And he's like, it's X amount of dollars a month. I was like, done, sold. Where do I sign? And, uh, so I signed a one year contract off of one jujitsu class. Wow. And, um, so I started going back and I go back for another class later in the week and, uh, I show up and I'm like, all right, man, let's do what's, what's on the list today. And he's like, well, just, uh, just go over there and, and start working with so-and-so on these katas. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, yeah. You just go in the corner over there and, and work with so-and-so we're going to, we're going to, he's going to teach you how to do your, your first kata. And I was like, okay, I guess there's katas in jujitsu, whatever. I don't know what I'm doing. And so, uh, Come to find out it was a karate school that was offering jiu-jitsu. And it was a jiu-jitsu program that this guy had created. He was his own system of jiu-jitsu. Um, hence, the reason there was a white hand-painted sign in the middle of the woods for this guy's gym. But I didn't know any better. So I just stuck with it. I was like, okay, well, you know, it's all, I don't know of any other options. And, uh, well, one day I had a guy come back to my office who was a guy that I'd put in the Air Force. And he was coming back on recruiter's assistance. And we just got to talking about jiu-jitsu and stuff. And I'm still super pumped, even though I'm unhappy with the jiu-jitsu that I'm learning because it's not what I saw on TV. Yeah. I didn't know any better. So I'm like, well, this is uh, – maybe this is how it is. And then I just get better. And um, so we were talking, and he's like, oh, yeah, you train over at uh, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu of West Monroe? And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, there's – at John's place there in West Monroe. And I said, uh, no, I'm driving to Minden – which is an hour away. So to put this into perspective, I lived in West Monroe. John's gym was across the street from my house. And so I didn't know that it was one exit down the interstate from where I lived. And I'm driving an hour and a half to learn this, this guy's version of jujitsu and I'm paying a lot of money for it. And so I called John up and I said, uh, Hey, I want to try a class. He's like, all right, come in. I went and did it. And then I see, okay, this is jujitsu. This is what I'm supposed to do. I get my butt handed to me. I ended up kicking a guy in the back of the neck because he was trying to do something with my foot. And it was just like everything. I showed up in Taekwondo pants and a black T-shirt, typical situation. And um, so I told John, I was like, let's do this. I want to do this. I want this. You know, I knew the Gracie name. Some 
through MMA and stuff like that. And he's like, all right, cool. Well, that'll be this much money. And I was like, well, I don't, I don't have any money right now, but I promise you I'll pay you when I do. I mean, he was like, well, that's cool, man. Just come back when you have money to pay me. And I was like, wow, what a dick. And so, um, the truth of the matter is that's just the way you do business, but I was wanting a free handout, I guess, but well, all so your then, money was going to the, uh, the other school. Yeah, I, was, <laughs> I was sending all this money to, uh, this karate master an hour and a half away. And, uh, which that was a dilemma that I was in. So now I've got this contract with this karate school and I don't know what to do. And I, you know, obviously my wife's not going to let me go to two different gyms and pay all this money. And so I start thinking to myself, I'm like, well, everything has a military clause. There's a way out of everything. And so what I did, and I want to preface this by saying that what I did is to my knowledge is not illegal. So, um, to my knowledge. And so, um, what I did was I went on the, uh, the, the internet and I looked up, uh, I found a form that was for permanent change of station for military members. And so basically it's this air force document that basically they send to you that says, Hey, you're changing stations. You're now going to go to this base instead. And it's got all this fancy writing and stuff on it. Um, and so I downloaded that form and I forged a bunch of information on it, basically saying that I was going to go to Korea for a year, that I was no longer going to be in the United States and that I, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, um, I signed captain so-and-so and, um, <laughs> yeah, so, I didn't put so-and-so, but it's not, not illegal, but, uh, forging and, and that sort of thing. It's been a long time though. So luckily there's some time between years, things. years, exactly. I think there's a statute of limitation on when you forge somebody's signature. So, um, at least I hope so. But, um, so I ended up calling the guy up and I was like, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving the state. I'm actually going out of the country and I have this form. So I need to give it to you so you can let me out of your contract. And he was like, all right, we'll bring it to me. So he looks at it and he's like, Oh, it looks official. And so, um, yeah, <laughs> as so I was like, as official as his jujitsu was exactly. And, um, he was like, all right, cool. Well, you know, it was nice nice seeing you when you get back from Korea, you know, maybe come see us. And I was like, okay. And so that's how I got out of the contract. And I was able to sign a contract with John and, um, begin my journey with, uh, with him. And I spent four years with him, uh, getting my blue belt before, um, I ended up moving to Arkansas in 2009. So, wow. But that's kind of my entry into jujitsu, that long story. Yeah. I wonder if you could have just I mean, it probably wouldn't have worked as quickly, but in reality, he sold you jujitsu, and he he wasn't uh, delivering that. Right, you know, I mean, that's, and that's the bad part. I about didn't the know contract. any better. Yeah, you know, and the thing is, is um, when, and you know, and this is something we can probably talk about at length, but uh, later on, I guess. But you know, when the Gracie Academy started offering these certifications online and and all that, you know, these guys, these. Uh, these traditional martial arts schools saw that there was money to be made in doing this. And, uh, you know, they weren't dedicating the time. They weren't putting themselves in the fire like we do on a regular basis to really get good at this, this martial art. Um, and they were looking at it as a dollar sign, you know, so I don't blame them for that, but you know, they're not, uh, I don't know. It's, it's kind of a slippery slope, I guess. It's it's they're not doing anything wrong, but at the same time, you know, I think most people who have who have done jujitsu for a pretty good while under a legitimate organization can tell you that, you know, it it's not wrong, but it doesn't feel right, you know. Yeah, I, I used to, you know, you could drive somewhere and they have <clears throat> on their board karate, kickboxing, jujitsu, taekwondo. It's all listed the alphabet of things they could teach you. 
Sure. And that used to bother me. Like, yeah, they're not teaching jujitsu. They, they, they may have a, a time where they quote, you know, do jujitsu, but it's like, that's oh, not the same. Uh, and maybe it is, maybe it isn't, because I don't typically go into there and check it out. But right. that people like you, you know, that that don't know what you know, you know what you're looking for, but you don't know where how what it looks like when you get there, are signing up and doing jujitsu there, and 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 trying to fulfill that uh, desire at a, at a school that may or may not actually be teaching that. You know, and and this was 2006, and so our 2007 timeframe, and uh, you know, we didn't have the networks that we have now as far as the community that we have now. So, you know, now if, if I want to go to Indiana, I just send, I just text Roly and say, Hey man, who do I need to talk to about training up here? And you know, everybody knows everybody, you know, you, you know, um, you guys had that, uh, the camp that you just recently had where you yeah. had Tim sled and those guys in, and you know, that's more than just getting to get together as a community. It's a huge network option. And, um, and we didn't have that back then, you know, back then, if your instructor was a purple belt, um, he was also a unicorn. You know, it was very rare for us in our in these rural areas of the world. You know, we weren't. I wasn't in California. I wasn't in Florida. You know, you had Cyborg down in California or in Florida, and you had all these big names out in California in the early 2000s. You know, Gabao had just won the Pan Ams around 09, I think it was. You know, and so, you know, and he was doing his circuits and stuff. But the point is, is that we had torrent videos that we could rip off Pirate Bay for instructional purposes because there was no YouTube. Um, we didn't have Facebook groups. We didn't have MySpace groups for jiu-jitsu that I was aware of. Um, so, you know, being able to just go out there and shop for good jiu-jitsu schools, it wasn't out there. So, unfortunately, you had to do what I did, which is you had to go and just try it out and find a place that fit for you, um, even if it cost you, you know, a couple of hundred dollars in the process to do so. Yeah, and so how long were you at that school? The original? The, no, the, the, the second one. The second one, yeah. So I was with John from 2007 until 2009. Um, and so I uh, I, I started in, in June of 07, and I got my blue belt from John in December of 2008. And then um, I was teaching his 6 a.m. classes uh, for a couple of years while I was there teaching his women's self-defense class. Um, I got, I was fortunate that I had, um, a lot of instructors who believed in me early on as far as my ability to teach and instruct and convey information. Um, so for me, I was fortunate that even as a young blue belt, I was giving, I was being afforded the opportunity to teach and coach and, and kind of express my limited jiu-jitsu at the time, but still be able to express it and, uh, and have the backing and support of my instructors. Um, and so in 2009, um, I ended up getting off of active duty. And when I got off active duty, I ended up moving to Little Rock to go to college at the University of Arkansas, Little Rock. And when I was so I didn't know, again, I'm in the same boat, but we have better Internet sources now. So I start doing a little bit more research. Um, and believe it or not, which is kind of an interesting coincidence of, of circumstances, um, I had thought about going to Westside back then in 2009. Um, and so before I was moving to Little Rock, I got on the internet to start looking up schools. And at the time there was only about three Westside was one of them. And then there were two others. And, yeah, um, just so anybody doesn't know Westside is, is where you're at now with Roley. Yes. Have, I'm okay. sorry. Yeah. yeah. Westside MMA is where I'm at now with under Roley. And, um, and what kept me and, th- and it's, you can't blame me for it, but at the same time, 
I feel bad about it now, having now that he's my coach. But what kept me from actually seeking out Westside MMA uh, at an earlier time in my career, back in 2009, was because this is also around the time that Roley was on the Ultimate Fighter show. And so for anyone who doesn't remember that season, it didn't do Roley a lot of favors, you know. Um, and that's when you learn the truth of reality TV, unfortunately. But for me, as a fan of the Ultimate Fighter show, I'm watching this and I'm watching Roley and, you know, and they're just they're doing all this stuff for television, you know, and they kind of present him as this goofy guy. And, you know, he's just, you know, all the other housemates are making fun of him. And then there was a the whole fiasco where they were where they were giving him a hard time about his black belt and everything like that. And so as a young, impressionable jujitsu guy, I remembered all that. And I was like, well, according to the ultimate fighter, that guy's not even, he's a fraud. I've already been screwed over once before, you know, by the other guy. So I'm not going to put myself in a situation like that. And so, um, and coming from a Gracie background, I wanted to stay with the Gracie lineage because I felt that that was what you did. You stayed true to your lineage. You stayed true to the Gracie family. You didn't veer to the left or the right. You stayed right on course. And so I sought out a Gracie Baja school that was in Jacksonville, Arkansas, and um, which is right outside where the Air Force Base is, where I, where I currently work. And uh, so I contacted them, and, and um, they were super happy to have me up there. So uh, when I moved up in 2009, I initially just started training with those guys. And um, I trained with Gracie Baja there uh, for a couple of years. I ended up getting my purple belt. So I got my purple belt from professor brian davis uh who he passed away a couple of years ago unfortunately but um so professor brian davis was running gracie baja arkansas uh and some of the people who listen to your podcast may may know him may they may not um but um he was running gracie baja arkansas and so when it came time to, pro, to pro, promote me to purple belt i had contacted my previous instructor to get his blessing um and he gave me the blessing and, and said yeah that's perfectly fine let the guy know that he's more than welcome to to promote you. So even then, even though I was training at a new gym, um, I still kind of felt that I was under my instructor. You know, I still kept in contact with him and communicated with him and stuff like that. And I didn't want my rank to come from somebody I didn't know. And so I always wanted my rank to stay as pure as it possibly could. Um, which at the time made sense. Now it's, it's different, but, um, and so I got promoted to purple belt and around that time, um, so the Gracie Baja school that I was training at, the head instructor was not the owner of the school, which this was new to me as well. I had never trained somewhere where the instructor of the school was not the owner. Um, the owner was just a fan of martial arts who wanted to open up a gym and he brought in this Brazilian world champion to teach the classes. Um, and when I got my purple belt, the owner and this individual had been on the outs and so they were looking at, at getting rid of him and they needed someone to fill in. And so they, the owner asked me if I would fill in teaching the classes. So I did. So I started teaching all the classes at, uh, at this particular school and, uh, covering the noon classes and the night classes and everything like that as a purple belt. Um, and I was the only instructor at the gym. It was my show the whole time, you know? Uh, so I was teaching the jujitsu that I knew. And, um, I did that for about a year where I, and I didn't get paid. I was, I was doing all this for free. I didn't pay tuition, but I also didn't receive any sort of compensation or anything like that. Um, and so about a year into that, I was kind of in a transitory position with my, with my job. And I kind of told the owner, I was like, Hey, 
you either have to start paying me for my services or I'm going to go have to get a real job to feed my family and stuff. I said, because, you know, this isn't going to work for me anymore. Yeah. How, and, just real, um, how, how many times were you teaching uh, per day or per week, you think? So I was teaching about six to seven times a week. Um, okay. Monday through Saturday. Okay. And so I was teaching. You're there a uh, lot. The two, oh, yeah. This isn't yeah, like, pretty yeah, much. okay. You, you were yeah, running yeah, the class. I was just coming in. Yeah, I was running the, exactly. The entire program was ran by me. Um, and the owner would make sure that all the financial and administrative stuff was done. And so um, I kind of made a decision after I talked to my family and stuff that, you know, if I couldn't get paid to do this, then I, I couldn't do this anymore for free. And, um, well, the individual um, wasn't able to pay me. He wasn't able to come to find the money to do so. And then, so I told him, I was like, well, I can't do this anymore. And this was probably around 2011, uh, 2010, 2011, I believe. Um, and so I just stopped showing up. Um, and of course my phone's getting blown up. I have students messaging me, you know, are we having class today? Is class going on? And the thing is, I didn't know what else to do because I'm not the one that I didn't put myself in this position, you know? Um, well, I mean, I did, but at the same time I didn't put, I didn't put the school in that position. Um, and so I had students messaging me, asking me if we're having class and, and I simply just said, if you have any questions about the gym, you need to contact this individual. He, he has all the answers. Um, and I was putting my foot down and now in hopes of the individual coming back and saying, okay, 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 I'll pay you. But unfortunately that never happened. I never got that phone call. And so I decided, well, I'll just open up my own gym. How hard can it be? And, uh, believe it or not, it's not that hard, but it's, it's running a gym that sucks. Um, opening a gym is super easy, but, um, so I decided to do that. And, um, I contacted my instructor, my, uh, my previous instructor and told him what I wanted to do and that I wanted to be affiliated under him. And I wanted to continue on under, under his tutelage and gen- and lineage. And he said, that sounds great. Let's do it. So I was like, okay. So then, um, when I left about seven or eight students from that previous gym in Jacksonville, Gracie Baja followed me. And so for about three months before I got the money together to open up a gym, we just had some rollout mats in a garage, in my buddy's garage, and we just kept training together um, because we didn't want to split up, but we had nowhere else to train. And we didn't want to go to someone else's gym. We kind of wanted to st- our group to stay together. And, um, and there were other gyms popping up at the time. I mean, obviously, Westside had been killing it for years before we ever decided to do what we were doing. Um, so we had options. Um, but... Uh, we just didn't want to leave each other. We wanted to stay together as a team. And so uh, we just trained in my buddy's garage um, for a couple of months. And then everyone decided, hey, we're all going to give Mitch uh, two months worth of tuition a piece as startup capital. And so they all gave me 200 bucks a piece, um, which I think was something just over you know, like 1500 bucks is what it ended up being or something like that. And um with that money, I was able to find a very small building. About It was about 500, 600 square feet. A small building, get the electricity turned on. I contacted Dolomer and leased out about 600 square feet of mats. And um, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu of Cabot was, was born in that respect. And, um, and I did that for several years. Um, I ran my own gym as a purple belt um, under my, my instructor and I would go down to West Monroe and train with him and um, he had affiliated under Crone Gracie at the time. And so when Crone Gracie would come to Louisiana, we would go and train with him and stuff. And 
and then um, around and so in 2014, um, I was promoted uh, to brown belt by Professor Pedro Sauer, um, who would, I'd been under Professor Pedro Sauer since day one. So my original instructor was all uh, Pedro Sauer through um, Alan Hopkins. And so I had gotten all my rank from Pedro Sauer, essentially. Um, and so in 2014, Master Pedro Sauer promoted me to brown belt personally himself. And so here I am as a brown belt, still running my academy, doing my thing. But this whole time, I'm competing, but I don't have a coach. So I have an instructor who I'm meeting with every couple of months and doing some training with, but I don't have a coach. And so when I'm going to competitions, it's just me and whatever two or three white belt students I had that went with me, you know, so I was going to Nagas and I was going to, uh, back then we only really had Naga. Um, so I was doing a bunch of Nagas. This is way before AGF ever came on, onto the scene. Um, and so I'm going to all these competitions. I'm competing. I'm competing. And what I'm starting to notice was is that at white belt, it was easy. Blue belt, it was easy. Purple belt, it's getting a little harder. Some of these guys are throwing things at me that I've never seen before. Um, and something is strange to regular people. When I say things I've never seen before, I'm talking Dela Hiva. I had never seen the Dela Hiva guard. I had never seen the reverse Dela Hiva guard. I had never seen lasso guard. And so here I am as a purple belt competing. And I'm coming in contact with guards that I had never been taught. I had never seen. And um, whenever people would come and do seminars at my school, uh, we had a couple of um, people from my original gym that would come up and do like a weekend seminar and stuff like that. I would ask them questions. Hey, how, what do I do in this situation? How do I do this? How do I do that? And it was always the textbook answer. It was always this vacuum answer. And when I say vacuum answer, what I mean is it was, oh, just do this, which would absolutely work in the event that the person was doing absolutely nothing to stop you, right? And so um, none of it was practical. It was just, you know, you, you, I was starting to realize that I was asking questions to brown and black belts out of their wheelhouse and realizing that they didn't have the answers that I needed. And so um, now here I am as a brown belt, which means that between now and in a couple of years from now, I'm going to be a black belt. And how can I be a black belt when there's so many questions that even my own instructors don't know? And so um, in July of 2015, I looked at two of my students and I said, you guys want to own your own jujitsu school? And they were like, ah, well, one day. And I was like, how about today? And they were like, um, what do you mean? And I was like, I think I'm leaving. And, um, I was like, it's either you guys take it over or I'm going to have to shut the school down. I said, because for me and my journey, I can't do this on my own. I need, I need a coach. I need somebody to, uh, that can, that can take me the rest of the way. And I don't think I have that. And so both of the guys were like, yeah, man, we'll do it. And so I didn't sell it to them. I didn't ask any money. I just said, put your name on the, on the paperwork and it's your school. And that day, uh, July, 2015, I contacted Roley and said, Hey, can I come in and do an open mat? And he charged me 20 bucks. I'd been friends with Roley for years. And as a Brown belt, he charged me $20 for a mat fee. And so, so I go over there and I knew that I was in the right place. And I tell this story a lot to the guys at Westside. Um, 
there's a, a young stud. He's now a purple belt, but he was a blue belt at the time. Again, I was a brown belt coming into this school. And um, his name is Ryan Riley. He's one of our, our MMA fighters. The, the kid's an absolute stud. And uh, he was a blue belt. I was a brown belt. It's a noon class in the middle of the Arkansas summer. I'd been training at my gym in air conditioning, thinking that I was training hard when I really wasn't. And um, I get to Westside, and these guys are just murdering each other, just murking it, but in a good way, you know. Um, and I get this this stud of a guy, blue belt, gets a hold of me and beats the brakes off of me. You know, his his conditioning was something I'd never seen before. Um, and he's just beating the brakes off of me, and he, he ended up submitting me with a triangle. And it was then that I was like, you know what, man? If if one of Rolly Delgado's blue belts is doing this to me, can you imagine what he could do for me? And so um, after that, I just I, I went uh, into the office and said, hey, man, um, let's sign up a contract. Let's do this. I, I think I want to. I think I'm home. And uh, and that was kind of how I ended up training with Rolly at Westside there. Yeah, um, I'm going to try to. Uh pull a couple of things out of this that, that may not be what you, what you would think, but, um, looking back, you know, it sounds like you were, uh, running your gym, you're the, like the top dog at the gym and you're kind of stagnating with your progress because you're limited by what you know, right? Absolutely. It, 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 now having the coaching and the, and maybe the different training experience, could somebody in that same situation, Let's just say that the, the gym is isolated. There's there's nowhere else to go in 50 miles. Uh, could they train differently to where they could continue to get better, even without such uh, influential and, and beneficial people like Rolly around? Like if, if you were stuck there, what could, what could that person do? I think that now the answer to that question is yes. If you would ask me that question three or four years ago, I don't know that I would have had the same answer. And the reason being is because with technology the way that it is, with information at our fingertips, I don't see how you can't find the information that you're seeking. Um, you know, and, and I'm sure you you were in the same boat years ago as well. But you know, back in the day, we would travel interstates to do seminars. You know, pay hundreds of dollars, drive all the way. You know, I was centrally located in Louisiana area, and so we were driving to Arkansas, Texas, Mississippi to do seminars with people like Andre Gaval and, you know, Master Pedro Sauer, um, Crone Gracie, just um, these big names, you know. And um, and so we had to really seek out the information. It wasn't as available as it is now. Um, I don't think – I think it still would be very difficult for a student or an instructor who is isolated um, in that respect – to be the best potential person they could be. Um, and I'm speaking only from my own experience because I see how far having a dedicated coach like Roly has brought me. And so I showed up at Westside, a particular individual. He's able, a coach is able to watch you, correct you, nurture you, uh, encourage you, and do things to mold and change you maybe you can't do on your own. Um, I'm not saying it's impossible. You can definitely have exposure to the current techniques with everything we have. I mean, between YouTube and Jiu-Jitsu and Reddit and forums and, uh, you know, people aren't really putting out a whole lot of DVDs the way they used to, at least not in the same format. 
but the availability of knowledge, I think, is much higher. And so at the very least, they would have the introduction to techniques that they wouldn't normally be introduced to. But I still think that there would still be something to be gained from having a dedicated coach. Now, when you look at somebody like Craig Jones or um, um, Kit Dale, you know, so your, what you described is exactly the, the scenario that they found themselves in. And Craig Jones just went and just murdered guys at the ADCC. And so he was isolated in the middle of Australia with very little access to jiu-jitsu and went in and submitted Leandro Lowe. You know, so are there anomalies out there? Sure. I think that they do exist. But I don't believe that a person, the average person of average ability um, can truly meet their full potential trying to do it on their own. Yeah. I think that, I mean, as a case study for Craig Jones, he's a uh, similar uh, plan of attack as Roley has. Uh, get really good at something and then also get really good at getting that person into that, that game and, and, and you could totally dominate that. And, it, and for you Craig, know, I interviewed him a, a while back, but he said he does his Z-guard on the side nobody else does it on, and it just throws everybody off, and not that many people play that anyway. And and, and he just drills and positional spars and, and works out the details and, and, and gets a really good game at something like that. And uh, and he's been able to have a lot of success with that. And the same thing with Rolly, you know, they get that single leg X. And, and, and watch what he could do. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and with, in that same respect, you look at another case study like a Gordon Ryan versus Felipe Pena. And the reason I mentioned that is because like you said, you know, Craig Jones has, has designed a, a Z guard system there where he's gotten so good at that one position and drilled it so many times that no matter what someone does, he can find a way to get what he wants out of the scenario. But then, and that's where – and I'm, I'm going down a path that, that it has an end to it. Um, you look at Gordon Ryan versus Felipe Pena, and Felipe Pena knew that as long as I have to – as long as I defend heel hooks, I have nothing to worry about. So there's a case study where a situation where someone has a perfect system in place but can easily be exploited if you're able to take them out of that game. Yeah. And so with me, one of the, one of the things that it really said to me a while back – because I'm a pressure passer. I have a very strong pressure passing game. I have a very strong top game. Um, I don't have the most dynamic guard. Um, and so something that Rolly said to me a couple of months ago was, he said, Mitch, the things that made you successful up to brown belt are not the things that are going to make you successful at black belt. And I think that that's where a coach comes in. That's the most important thing that a coach can bring to the table. That's not something, if it wasn't for him, I would have just stuck to what was easiest for me. Do a fireman's carry, inside leg trip, and then pass their guard and dominate the top position. And I would have done that until I beat my brains in, you know. And But having a coach to sit there and say, you've got to fix this part of your game because if you don't, you're going to get left behind, um, I think is one of the biggest things that an, a coach can be as an asset to evaluate you. If you don't have someone constantly evaluating you, um, we can do all the self-evaluation that we want, but the unfortunate side, part of that is the average human, I think the average competitor, um, is fairly lazy in their own introspective looking at themselves in their game. And they want to continue to do what has worked. And when it doesn't work, they, they count it as a fluke and they go, oh, well, it was just that one time. 
it normally does work though. And then the next time it's like, man, these guys are shutting me down. Well, now it's too late, you know? And so, but to have a coach catch it early, like Rolly did with me and say, we need to address this. If we don't address this, you're going to get left behind. And that's something that I could have never, I don't think I ever would have made that evaluation on myself. I think I just would have kept driving my head into people's faces and pressure passing them until I couldn't do it anymore, you know, or until it stopped working. And so, um, so I think there's something to be said about, you know, having a coach to be able to have outside evaluations of you because we may lack our own ability to do self-evaluation sometimes. Yeah. Mitch, uh, thinking about that, him telling you, Hey, what got you here isn't going to be, isn't going to be the same thing that gets you to the next level. Do you think that's kind of unique to like, not unique, but was that because of the, the game that you were playing needed to change? Or is that a lot of people get to a certain level and it's time to make the change, uh, and, and, and have to adapt to, to new situations? I, I think that, uh, I think it's both. Um, I think for me, especially as an athlete and as a competitor, it needed to be addressed. Um, and for me, the lucky thing about my situation was, is that nothing needed to change. I just needed to add something to it. I had to round out what I had. Um, but I think just t- over time, I think competitors change. And I, I bring up Leandro as an example. I mean, that guy went from a lightweight to a heavyweight and his entire game kind of changed, you know, because it had to based on who he was competing against because he was going through different levels of weight classes and certain certain styles of game will work at certain levels of the game, certain weight classes. You know, you get a Lucas Barbosa who is a strong pressure passer with a good judo game and it works perfect for the medium heavies. But you try to do the same style of game against a featherweight or a lightweight like a Hoffa, and he's pulling guard on you. Well, your takedown game doesn't really do a whole lot for you. And now he's got the flexibility to shut down your pressure passing. You know, and so um, I think I think if if you're progressing through a situation like that, you have to change. Um, I don't think that you could go your entire career just doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, you're going to get shut down. If that, if, if that makes sense, I, yeah. I, think, I don't know if I answered the question or not. Yeah, that, that does make sense. And I, you know, I've seen both sides. Uh, people say, Hey, I've been doing that technique since blue belt and it's working for me great as black belt. And I see uh, people that would work for them at one belt level. doesn't work out the next one. And you have to be able to put that aside and say, hey, I, I was good at this. I'm still pretty good at it. But to be able to compete at where I am now or to perform where I want to be, I'm going to have to make some changes. And for me, um, when I first started training jiu-jitsu, um, I only had a guard game. I didn't have a passing game at all, not even at, up in, not even at brown belt. I didn't become a guard passer until I got to west side and started training under Rolly. Um and so from white all the way up to mid-purple, I was a guard player. I had a very basic uh, knee-shield half-guard, closed-guard game. And I also weighed 154 pounds. And then I started training at Westside, and I've progressively gotten bigger. You know, And now I'm, I'm 185 pounds, and I'm a pressure passer. But if you had told Blue Belt Mitch, hey, in 11 years, you're going to be a pressure passer. I would have told you you were insane. There's no way. How am I going to put, I weigh 150 pounds. There's no way I can put any pressure on anybody, you know, and fast forward and things change. Life changes. Your strength and conditioning program changes. You put on mass, you put on weight and now your game has to change, you know? Um, 
And it's not necessarily, I think maybe Roly saw something in, in my abilities as a scrambler to start including this pressure passing style into me as an athlete. And I think that's what forged ahead with my, my passing style was my ability to scramble because I was a small guy who became bigger. I wasn't a big guy who got small. So I spent most of my young jujitsu career um, fighting big guys. So I had to have a very good scramble. I had to be able to get out from under people very quickly. I had to move quickly. I had to outrun people because I couldn't outmuscle people, um, so to speak. And so I took that attribute even into my heavier weights. And so I think maybe that's something that he saw in my abilities and made the change without me even realizing the change was being made. And next thing you know, I'm waking up as a pressure passer. When, when I went to bed, I was a guard player and I woke up as a pressure passer and now we're going in reverse where now he's put me back into the position where he wants to be playing guard again. So now I'm going backwards. What has it been like, uh, changing schools? I think that's something that people are, uh, maybe they contemplate and some people do it and some people never, uh, make that move. But, uh, for some reason, I mean, maybe different because you were kind of running your own thing and then you went to somebody else's. That's, that's a whole different category. You went from, from being, you know, owner to somebody who's working within a gym. Yeah. Um, for me, it was, uh, for me, it was, it was strange because I, I went to, I changed gyms because I had come to the conclusion that I was not happy in the atmosphere that I was being raised in. Um, and I don't mean that in any way as far as hazing or anything like that is concerned. Um, I felt the mentality was toxic. Um, my leadership was toxic in their mentality and their thought process um, of the way that jujitsu should be taught in the way that jujitsu should be shared. Um, you know, like I said before, I came up under a very strict Gracie lineage. And I was taught to believe that if, if it is not Gracie jujitsu, it is not real. It does. It, it, it's, it's not real. Um, and if you try to train anything other than Gracie jujitsu, you're wrong. And if you, you're, you're learning wrong jujitsu. And I, I believe that for years upon years and upon years. And I believed that if I went to another gym, that I was somehow breaking some unwritten rule because they weren't a Gracie jujitsu gym. And since they weren't a Gracie school, they couldn't teach me real jujitsu and I'd be wasting my time. And then I started realizing that that wasn't even remotely true. Um, and so when, you know, when I, when I talk to people about changing gyms, because they're training jujitsu is not just about training jujitsu. It's about a community. It's about making friends, making family, you know, everybody at Westside. And I don't say this is just a buzzword. We are truly a family. Um, we've been there for each other's children's births, birthdays, weddings, um, you know, you name it, you know, we've done it as a group, as a family, a giant family. Um, and it's real. And so people, people join gyms and become, I think the, the hardest part that people have about making the decision to leave a gym, even if they're in a toxic scenario is because they don't want to leave their family. So when I talk to people about changing gyms or if they're thinking about switching gyms, I tell them, do what you think is right for you. What is going to make you happy? Because, 
and then and then look at it from the perspective of why are you even looking at another gym? Is it because you think that gym can make you a world champion? Is it because that your current instructor um, is trying to sleep with your girlfriend? Is it because you know you've got a bunch of toxic people on the mats training with you and everybody's trying to hurt each other and nobody's progressing? So you have to evaluate what reason you have for even considering the thought. You know, for me, um, I made the decision because a, um, I believed that the environment that I was growing up in and my leadership was sending me down a path that was going to stunt my growth as a martial artist. Um, I believed it was very, what's the word? Um, whatever a word for racist would be for martial arts, you know, like I felt that my martial art was racist toward other martial arts, if that makes any sense, you know, like it was a really weird scenario for me. And so I just felt like I was going to be stuck if I didn't do something about it. And, and so when I get asked those questions, I tell people do what's right for you because it's your journey. It's no one else. You owe no, nothing to anyone. You know, if tomorrow I decided that Rolly and I just weren't going to work out, that's my decision. And Rolly would respect it. He wouldn't pressure me. He wouldn't, he wouldn't do anything other than say, if that's what you think is right, then that's what you need to do because it's your journey. It's not anyone else's journey. And so um, if an individual is making that choice or that decision, as long as they're making that decision for the right reasons, then I think absolutely, you know. Um, but ask yourself, obviously, why you're wanting to make the decision in the first place. And if it's just because you want to follow your friends, you know, and maybe that's an okay reason. I'm not telling somebody that they can't leave a gym because they want to follow their friends. Um but just make sure that you're looking at it from an outside perspective. But at the same time, if if you don't mind just going from gym to gym to gym to gym to gym, no one should there's no one to judge that. That's your again, it's your journey, man. Like nobody has to answer to you or what you have in your in your head except you. So that seems like it's pretty uncommon to just go from gym to gym to gym because uh Although I, I totally, if somebody wants to, to change gyms, you know, you are the customer. If you want to shop here today and shop somewhere else tomorrow, that's perfectly fine. But I think that the, the, what makes it uncommon is because, like you were saying, it becomes a family. It becomes more than just a, a business relationship. You get to know these people that you're there with. Uh, and that's why it's hard. Even if you have a problem with the coach, you still like the teammates and, and you feel like uh, uh, you belong with them and you want to help them and they are helping you. And so I think like the extreme, you know, every month somewhere new, I, I don't know if I've ever seen that, but, uh, it, it, that, that bond either between the student and the coach or the student and the, the classmates is oftentimes hard to break. I agree hundred percent. And that was one of the hardest things that I dealt with when I made the decision to do what I did. And, um, and there, unfortunately I deal with the repercussions of my decision to do what I did because, um, you know, I wasn't just a teammate. I was the coach. I had students who had built a bond with me. Um, and when I made the decision to leave, uh, and now there were other circumstances in which I left for, none of which were dramatic or anything like that, but there were other circumstances that revolved around my decision. But um, so for me, I had to deal with the guilt of that, you know, and, and I have, there are individuals out there right now who were former students of mine that probably wouldn't have much to say to me if they saw me in, in a Walmart, you know? Um, and so I had to take that into consideration. I knew, like you said, that family. So, you know, I made a very selfish decision 
when I did what I did. But at the same time, it's kind of like when someone's in a relationship and they want to, you know, or like a marriage and they want to stick together for the kids, you know, at, at what point do you give the person the advice? You know, at what point do you say, Hey man, look, staying together for the kids, is just not the right way to do it. You know, you got to be happy for yourself as well. You know, humans are resilient creatures. So, um, you know, they're not going to, most people forget things pretty quickly anyways. Yeah. I, the having uh, never had a divorce and also never had kids, I uh, don't know much about that staying together with the kids. But <laughs> um, you know, from the relationship, from the gym thing, if you're in the spot and you think it can get better and you think you're going to be able to 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 fix things, you stick it out. You 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 stay with it for the kids. If you look at it like this is hopeless, I'm not going to uh, be able to to pursue my own jujitsu journey. At all, like I, I, there's no growth for me. I'm actually not really helping the students that much, and uh, you know, if it's a toxic environment at the house, and and, and the kids are seeing a poor example of a of a relationship every day, you know, that's that's another decision to make. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Kind of a weird analogy to to bring up uh, <laughs> divorces, but I mean, like in leaving a gym, I, mean, I guess it's it's not that that strange. Yeah, of it's a, a relationship. Yeah. You know, and so in, in essence, it is a relationship and essentially you are breaking up with, you know, an entity. Maybe it's not a human, but you're, you're breaking up with an entity. Um, you know, you're agreeing to see other people at that point. So um, metaphorically, but I think that I think that anyone I don't think that anyone should ever be afraid to make those decisions for themselves. And um, I know that, you know, there there are gyms in this world that would ostracize you for making that, that, that choice. And they would say, Hey, if you're not with us, you're against us, which I think is an absolutely terrible way to look at things. Um, Mitch, can, can you, uh, trying to like see the other side of this, uh, and you don't bother to name names, but can you think of a time when, uh, you were coaching somebody, it could be, you know, in the past, you know, month or years ago, and they went to another gym and, and, and as a coach, how uh, how that felt, and and, and how you reacted? Um, well, it, well, it's, that's a really good question, actually, because I've I've experienced a couple of different versions of that emotion in my career. And so, early on, when I first started teaching at my own gym, um, I had a few students that would cross train with others other gyms in the area, and. I pretended like it doesn't, it didn't bother me, but it did because I felt, well, what are you saying? You saying that, uh, I'm not good enough for you or, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't say these things verbally to the student, but in my head, in my own, my own introspective thoughts, I'm thinking to myself, am I not good enough for this person? Why are they having to seek out information from someone else? Why are they having to train somewhere else? You know, not only that, you know, in, at the time, my thought was not only that they're not even doing real jujitsu. Why? Because they're not under my lineage. And so, you know, you're wasting your time. And, um, so it did, it did bother me, um, when it was happening to me. Now I never had anyone leave, um, and leave me for another gym. I had an individual leave me because I wouldn't promote them and they went to another gym to try to get promoted. But, you know, uh, that didn't hurt my feelings at all, as you can imagine. But, um, I did have, a couple of individuals that would cross train. And in the beginning, in the first couple of years before my mindset started to switch, um, it did hurt my feelings because I felt like it was my fault. Like I wasn't doing something that I could be doing as a coach. And then, um, it almost felt like I was being cheated on in a relationship. 
but I knew about it, you know, like it, they weren't going behind my back. They were totally letting me know, you know, it was, Hey coach, I just wanted to give you, and they were super respectful about it. Hey coach, I'm going to let you know, you know, this Sunday or this Saturday, I'm going over to so-and-so's open mat. Just want to let you know. And I'm like, cool, bro. You know, but in my head, I'm thinking, man, this month right here, you know? Um, and so it really bothered me. And then I would actually, before I ever came to Westside, I would actually go and visit with Roly um, as a mentor because I'm running a gym as a young, a young purple and brown belt, and he's been doing it for years. So I would go talk to him. And Roly really changed my mind about the way that I was looking at the world of jiu-jitsu. And we would have these conversations. He, he used to run a, um, he used to own a pawn shop not far from my gym. And so on the days that he wasn't doing jujitsu stuff, he would go and hang out at the pawn shop and run that. And I would go in there and talk to him and we would just spend a couple hours just chit chat. You know, I'd pick his brain about marketing and programs and things like this. And then I would complain to him, you know, and, and it's funny because I would complain about a student and be like, man, this dude's going over to so-and-so's gym, you know, and cross. And what I wanted him to do was say, oh man, that's effed up. But he didn't. Instead, he said, why do you have a problem with that? And I was like, well, I mean, because, dude, you know, I'm their instructor, man. I should be able to, I've got all the answers, you know. They shouldn't have to go seek it out from somewhere else. If they're seeking it from somewhere else, then it must be because, you know, they don't think I'm good enough. And he really laid it out to me. He's just like, man, that's a really, that's a toxic way to think about life. You know, cross training is something that should be encouraged. And, um, and so that was the beginning of my mind state changing about cross training and about my own journey. And so eventually when those guys would say, Hey coach, we're going to go over to this cross, this open mat or whatever. I would say, cool, man, I'll come with you guys. And I would start going and cross training with those guys instead of just sitting at home pouting, um, watching reruns, you know, on television, I would, I would go and train with them, um, and see that, uh, it's not, it's not what you think it is. You know, it's just, you have to experience other worlds of jujitsu if you ever expect to grow. And, and that's something that Roly always puts on us. Cross training encourages to cross train. Um, you know, Andy encourages you to step out of your comfort zone, but me personally, I never experienced anyone actually leaving my gym with the exception of the one guy that just got mad because I wouldn't give him a blue belt. But, um, and, uh, outside of that, and, and I, like I said, I wasn't, I wasn't butthurt to see that guy go anyways. So, um, but I did experience the butthurt in the beginning and then eventually realize how narrow minded and closed minded it was for me to think that way. Looking at that now as, um, from the perspective of the, of the students who want to cross train, but like you said, they were doing the right thing. Hey coach, we're going to go cross train this weekend. And you were like, Oh yeah, cool. Good luck. Have fun. And, but really it kind of bothered you. Is there anything they could have done differently? Like maybe just put more emphasis on, hey, we're going to cross train this weekend, Mitch. Uh, you know, it's fun training. And, you know, we met these guys at this tournament and they're really fun to, to be around. And, and, and a lot of the reason why we're going is just to get to better know these people, maybe stress out a little bit or because they're fun to be around, not, not to shortcut the jujitsu they're learning from you. I'm trying to think of a, a way to tell. Uh, a coach that you're going somewhere else to train because that's responsible to to not do it behind their back, but Correct. to kind of not have such a big reaction. This not like a big reaction, but not have such a negative uh, feeling from the coach as, as they're going there for this. I think honestly, if you have to, if you have to explain it, yeah, 
that in depth, there's probably an issue. Yeah. You know, um, I think that as a student, like you said earlier, you're a customer. You're a customer. You're paying an individual money to provide you a service. When I go to Walmart, Walmart doesn't get to tell me how to shop. They just provide the things that I want. I give them my money and I leave the store with the things that I came to get. Um, and I don't mean to, to uh, diminish uh, the attributes that a coach brings to the table. There's obviously far more involved than that. And it's not as simplistic as that. I think you get a lot of bang for your buck when you invest in a decent coach or a good coach. Um, but at the same time, you don't own that person. They are a customer. And so I feel, and I don't mean to, and there may be coaches out there who com- are listening to this right now. And they're like, dude, that guy is off his rocker. You know, who is he <laughs> to tell? You know, but that's the truth, man, is that, um, we provide a service as, as coaches yeah. and as school owners and as business owners and name any other business that you would have to tell the business that you were going to do. You know, I mean, you don't go, you go to Burger King and you have it your way because you pay for that. Um, you go to Chili's and if you don't want onions on your hamburger, they don't put onions on your hamburger because you paid for it. Um, you know, they're not going to tell you, uh, well, you're not, in fact, actually the only option we have is to put more onions on your hamburger actually, you know? (laughs) And so, um, I think, I think there's value definitely in, in the question that you're asking as far as like, maybe there's somebody out there who is in that scenario and they don't know how to approach their coach. Um, and I think something as simple as saying, Hey coach, I'm going to go train with these guys. Um, I just thought I'd let you know should be enough. Yeah. And if the coach requires more then I think maybe you should look into your relationship with that individual. Yeah, that's interesting. And, uh, it goes back to the whole thing of uh, having the relationship with the coach and everybody else, on that team and, and what, and what you're looking at there. Uh, tell me a little bit about the difference between, uh, running a school versus I guess, uh, working within uh, a school. I have a dream job. That's the difference. <laughs> so, so, um, you know, anyone who opens up a gym, they're not opening a gym because they're like, you know what? I want to go in debt and see how terrible I can make my family suffer. You know, like, no, they open up a gym because they want to teach jujitsu because they want to do jujitsu for a living because they love it so much. Um, but the unfortunate part about that is that it's a business. And so for me, Having spent three to four years running a gym, and in my opinion, for the town that I was in, was a fairly successful gym. Um, nothing on the level of, of a big gym, but it was definitely sustainable, and it paid the bills, and it did its job. Um, but the reason I did it was because I didn't want to train under anyone else, and I wanted to be able to do jiu-jitsu all the time. And so um, when I had the opportunity to teach at Westside um, – it's literally become a dream job for me because I get all the benefits of getting paid to teach jujitsu, but I have zero headaches, zero headaches. Um, you know, and it all started with one day Roly was just like, Hey, um, I'm thinking about adding two kids classes to this, to the, to the schedule. How would you feel about teaching them now in my head? I'm thinking, so this is the interesting part about going from being an instructor to being an instructor at another gym. So when I was teaching at my gym, I got to pick and choose what things I did, you know, and so, you know, you get to pick the crappy jobs versus the cool job. And so for me, I taught all the adult classes and I taught the older 
kids. I didn't teach little kids. Now I have, a, I have uh, five kids of my own, so I'm not a stranger to children, but I don't like teaching. Certain age groups are difficult to teach. I want to say it that way. Um, so if you're given the choice, you're always going to choose the less challenging, right? Um, and so here I am, you know, I'm, I'm coming into Westside and, you know, I just came up, you know, I'm a brown belt. I'm a, I'm a former adult instructor. I ran my own gym. I've got all these credentials and this credit. And here's Roly saying, Hey man, you want to teach a kid's class? And in my head, I'm thinking, bro, I'm better than that. Man, why don't you let me teach one of these adults classes? Let me show you what I can really do. And, um, obviously that's not the way it went down <laughs> because I'm, I'm humble enough to know that, you know, I'm being offered a gift. And, you know, I have to put my humble pants on and go back to teaching kids, you know. Um, and so I did. I took that opportunity. Um, I never looked back. And I said, yeah, man, let's do that. And uh, and we've built a great kids program off of that. And just as I hoped uh, would happen, as I progressed with the kids class, other opportunities came available to start teaching adult classes. And so now I teach uh, a Tuesday, Thursday, 6 a.m. class for the adults. And I teach my own uh, Friday beginners class for the adults. And so, you know, I started from the bottom all over again, um, going from teaching all the cool classes at my own gym, the, ki- the classes I wanted to teach, to having to work for what I was doing, um, humble myself again, go back to teaching kids again, um, and then work my way back up the ladder to teaching adults, you know. Um, now, I don't want any of that to come out the wrong way and think that, like, I hate teaching kids. I love teaching kids. I love teaching my kids. The, the, the correlation I'm trying to make is that it's like asking a, it's like asking a doctor to go and be a, uh, you know, I don't know, a, put a bandaid on a school. Or, yeah. Or, you know, it's like, man, but I've got all these other skills, you know, I mean, I've got, I spent, yeah. I, I, you know, and yeah, I got, so like you uh, wanted to be used, uh, you didn't want to be underutilized as far as, uh, you know, teaching uh, kids how to shrimp and how to forward right. roll and, and, and getting them to laugh on the mats. You wanted to show the details behind uh, this yeah. technique to uh, a group of competitive adults. And I'm kind of thinking like, <laughs> man, there's, isn't there a blue belt that can do that? Yeah. You know, and, um, but obviously, um, and that was just my early thinking, you know, coming into a gym like that. But of course, I wasn't going to turn any opportunity down. I mean, to be able to be an on-staff coach at, at it, arguably the number one gym in the entire state of Arkansas under one of the most renowned um, black belts in the game right now. Um, you know, the dude said, hey, man, what do you think about taking the trash out twice a week? Yeah. OK, cool. We'll do that. And then we'll maybe maybe we'll work up to cleaning the bathrooms and then, you know, whatever. I don't care. I would have done anything, anything at that at that moment just to be a part of the team because I was so happy to be there um, to just be a part of what Westside was doing and what they're continuing to do. So for me. You know, although, yeah, I, I kind of hoped that I would be offered an adult class. That's just not the way it works. You know, sometimes you have to humble yourself and realize that you're not in charge anymore. You're now an employee, you know, and um, so, you know, like I said, it's like asking a doctor to go be a school nurse, you know, but. But if but that's I, the case, I, you, you know, give the best school nursing you, do the best you, you could do absolutely. And, and, and work your way absolutely. back up. And you, yeah, exactly, you know, and I was happy to do it. Still am. Love my kids class. So, uh, competitive wise, what, what are your, your current goals? Are you, are you competing or are you mostly focused on coaching? 
Well, it, that's a really good question to ask me right now, considering my situation. So, um, so I got my black belt in January and had my black belt debut at the Dallas Open um, a couple of months ago, and uh, I got I made it to the podium on both in both divisions, nogi and gi. Um, but in my nogi, my first nogi match, I ended up tearing my distal bicep, um, which required surgery. And so I had, uh, I'm, I'm one month post-op right now, um, as we're talking now. Um, and so I had my, my bicep surgery in May at the end of May. And, um, and so I can't compete. I can't even train. I can't do, uh, anything but coach and teach. And so, um, you know, I was really looking forward to going into my, my, um, my debut year as a black belt and just doing my best to wreck house and hit the podium at all the IBJJF events that I could and try to make a name for myself as best I could in the divisions that I was able to do. And unfortunately I was sidelined in my very first outing as a black belt. Um, and so right now my main focus is, um, is coaching and teaching and, um, trying to develop that area of my game, um, which people don't realize that it's, you know, you watch coaches, t- uh, coach at, at tournaments, you know, and, you know, I listen to Roly coach me when he's coaching me and, and you think it's easy until you have to, to really do it and bring out the hardest part is you're trying to convey an idea into words so that the individual you're yelling at can understand what you want them to do. You know, so you're from a coaching aspect, you're, you're trying to be a marionette, um, a puppet master, so to speak with words because otherwise the individual is not going to perform. Uh, and if you don't convey the message appropriately, they're going to do the wrong thing. And so learning how to say less with more, which is extremely hard from, for me, as you've probably seen, um, to be able to speak less, um, is something that I've really had to develop. And, um, and again, Rolly's been right there mentoring me every step of the way, you know, encouraging me on nights where we're doing competition training. We have a competition coming up soon. And we have guys that are competing, and I'm really just trying to work on coaching with these guys and yelling at them. I put my gi on every 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 night. I still put my gi on. I put my black belt on, and I sit and I watch technique, and I work with Roly and the other teammates, and I help the young guys and the and the white belts. Um, you know, because I could have easily said, I teach my kids class, and as soon as my kids class is over, I could easily just put my stuff on and go home um, because there's nothing else for me to do job wise. But instead I don't, I put my gi on and I go sit in adult class and I help and I coach and I encourage. Um, and like I said, you know, and, and Roly kind of lets me do that, which is, you know, something that, uh, I appreciate more than anything because he doesn't have to, you know, he, he could easily put a stop to it, but he lets me coach the guys during the competition rounds and, and really hone in on being able to convey and communicate an idea to an individual. Um, and, and I'm finding that it's making my jujitsu better um, when you have to work on that, um, that area of your game. Because when you're a competitor, all you have to do is be able to listen. You don't have to communicate. You just have to listen. Well, as a coach, you have to communicate. It's not just listening, you know. And so it's a, it's a weird dynamic mentally to switch, you know. Yeah. Uh, Changing – just a little bit here. You tore your distal bicep. Is that what you said? Yeah, on my right arm. Okay. So I was, how, how did that happen? Yeah. Um, great question. Um, well, so essentially, it was in an 
Yogi match, and um, I had over-unders on, on my competitor. And um, I went to pull my arm out. And when I went to yank my arm out from underneath his underhook, uh, we were standing up. Um, I over-eccentric stretched my arm. Uh, so essentially, I stretched my arm all the way out. I straightened it completely out and then pulled. Well, when I pulled, my arm didn't go anywhere. And so when it didn't go anywhere, it just tore the tendon. Uh, I had a partial thickness tear on my uh, at, at the distal end of my bicep, which is around where the uh, bicep goes into the elbow. Yeah. Um, and so I didn't think anything was wrong because it didn't hurt. I had heard people who had torn their biceps and calves and all kinds of stuff. And um, I, I didn't think I tore it because there was zero pain whatsoever. It just didn't feel right. Um, and the in the match, I ended up getting into 50-50 guard, and I was trying to underhook the guy's leg to sweep him to come up for two. And every time I tried to underhook his leg with that particular arm, um, it just felt like bubble wrap was going off inside my arm. And I, I was like, I don't know what the hell this is. Because um, I'd never torn a bicep before. I'd never had any sort of serious injury. I made it almost 12 years in jiu-jitsu with no surgical or serious injuries. I've dislocated shoulders before. I've popped ribs and things like that, you know, but I've never had a serious internal injury like this. Um, and so I completed the match. We got done. I ended up losing two to zero to a great competitor. And um, I walked over to Rolly and I was like, I think I may have torn my bicep. Now, what's what's interesting about that, and it's something that Rolly kind of said afterwards, he was screaming at me the whole time telling me what to do and getting frustrated, I think, because I wasn't doing what he was telling me to do because I couldn't, I couldn't make the movement work, um, given my injury. Um, and I mean, he's yelling, I'm talking like to the point where I'm starting to think he's mad at me <laughs> and, um, screaming at me, you know, and at the end of the day we go and sit on the bleachers and he's like, Hey man, um, you know, I know you were hurt. I know you, you hurt your arm and you, you couldn't really, do anything but at the end of the day i still got a job to do and i'm still your coach so you know no hard feelings you know so um which i understood you know but and and the thing is is i didn't want to yell hey i think i hurt my arm because the, th the last thing i wanted was for my competitor to be like oh his arm is hurt you know and so i was trying to keep it to myself while I, while trying to finish the match as best i could um so i couldn't tell roly my arms effed up you know but every time he saw me try to use it and realized, like, I was not able to use it, I think they figured it out. But, but yeah, it was a pretty freak injury. Um, you know, usually when guys tear their biceps, it's usually these big bodybuilders who are lifting more weight than they're, they're able to lift. And then the tendon pops from the bone. But in my case, it was an overextension of my elbow um, that pulled the tendon from the bone. And um, they ended up going in there and they had to – so it didn't fully detach from the bone. And when they went in there, they ended up having to – detach it completely they cleaned up the tendon and they reattached it into the radius bone and and um that was that i was in a sling for about a day and um it's now as of right now it's about three or four weeks post-op and i've got full mobility uh, it's it's almost as if nothing ever happened it, it doesn't even feel like i had surgery on it however um i have extremely limited uh use of it as far as weight bearing is concerned okay mitch do you have any idea what the date will be when you get to be back on the mats and using it? Well, it depends on who you ask because when I asked the doctor specifically, when can I start competing again? His answer was probably never. Well, I, I pretend like I didn't hear him say that. And so the research I've done on the internet is that um, probably around August, I guess. So um, now it's, it's usually a three to six month recovery. Um, 
if you're an athlete, it typically takes less time, mainly because um, our forearms and our brachialis muscles are stronger than the average person. And so we are actually able to heal faster simply because of the enhanced strength of the other supporting muscles. Um, So that's why I say around August, I think I probably won't get to compete this year. So this, this season's probably out for me. Um, if I'm really, really lucky, I might be able to hit maybe the San Antonio open or something later in the year around October, November, December timeframe. But the truth of the matter is, is I probably will just not be able to compete at all this year, um, and go into the 2019 season, um, headstrong and, and, and hoping to do well. So that, and I, that sounds like it's, uh, mentally challenging to to have that goal hey i want to go out there in my first year i'm going to you know break out make a name for myself in the black belt division and then to be sitting here and, and watch your first year just pass as time passes and and not do that yeah. can you think of like any positive uh, as far as maybe developing your own jiu-jitsu or changing your game or anything like that that you're going to be able to gain from uh taking some time off from competing i think that um obviously for me like I mentioned before, just the, the mental game, the mental aspect, the, the, um, the study side of it, because I have to, I'm coaching more. And so in the process of coaching, um, I'm having to examine other people's games, my fellow teammates and students, I'm having to really study their game in order to be able to help them improve. And in the process, I'm having to calculate more mentally about techniques and leverage and the way they would work you know i think at a certain point in jiu-jitsu we all get to the point where especially as brown and black belts where what we do what our game is it just works because we've done it for so long we don't generally have to think about any positions outside of what we're good at um so for me having to sideline myself and sit out um and and not be able to be physical uh within jiu-jitsu um it's allowed me to to really focus in on the development of my teammates and also start to look at other aspects of the game um, and kind of look at it. You know, maybe, maybe for me, single leg X for me, it was just simply one sweep. That's it. I just would, if I was ever in single leg X, I just did one sweep and I moved on. But now we have young blue belts that are really experimenting with single leg X and they're doing some really cool, amazing things and some things that I wouldn't have normally paid attention to because I was so concerned about my own development, my own game. You know, I was never getting to sit out and watch other developing athletes create their game. And so I'm getting to see certain aspects and certain games that I didn't get to see before because I didn't care. Um, because I was concerned about my own development as far as, you know, I wasn't sitting on the sidelines watching everyone else. I was in the mix. Um, whereas now I'm getting to look at other people. And getting to see how they are approaching techniques and jujitsu and, and their game and getting to almost get to learn all over again from their perspectives. You know, things that I just would have been completely blind to before I'm getting to see now because I'm watching and not just doing. Yeah, that's a that's a good way to think of it. And I know that uh like taking that different side of of looking at jujitsu, it, it it can change the way you, you see things and uh, change the way you coach, change the way you want to uh, change the selection of moves you want to focus on and learn. So that's, uh, that's one positive of having your, your bicep messed up, I guess. 
Yeah, there's always a silver lining, I guess. I mean, <laughs> as frustrating as it is, it's extremely frustrating, you know, especially um, for me because, you know, I also enjoy lifting weights outside of jujitsu, you know, and so for me, um, you know, I start to develop this, this irregular little man syndrome that doesn't actually exist, you know, and I'm thinking, man, I'm losing all my gains, bro. You know? <laughs> and so, um, I'm still lifting and stuff, but I'm, I have to be very, very careful in the movements that I choose, you know? And so of course I having that typical meathead response of, you know, I'm going to lose all my gains and I'm not going to be as athletic and I'm, it's summertime, it's beach season and I got to take my shirt off and my abs are, you know, just really, really, really stupid stuff. But, um, you know, things that you don't think about whenever you can use both your arms. Yeah. Uh, Mitch, I've had a, a blast talking with you. If somebody wants to train with you, what's a good way to get a hold of you? Yeah. Well, the best way to do it is I have an Instagram, so you can hit me up, uh, on Instagram, Mitch Hall, BJJ, um, not.com. But uh, Mitch Hall BJJ, and then um, I, I usually use that for for any sort of um, social media interactions because my Facebook is kind of just for me. Um, and of course, you can obviously look up Westside MMA. It's WestsideMMA.com, and uh, you can get our number off there. Our Facebook is available there, um, so you can pretty much find me any way through that route. That's awesome. I'll put links uh, to to that on the show notes. Mitch, any final thoughts or ideas you want to share with the audience? Um, the biggest thing I guess is just do you, you know, that's my, that's what I've learned in jujitsu. Just do you don't worry about other people. Don't worry about what other people might think about you. Um, just do you, because at the end of the day, um, you know, you're going to have teammates come and go. You may even have coaches come and go, but at the end of the day, you want to be able to look back and be happy with who you were in the process and in the journey. And uh, you never want to look back and have regrets. You never want to look back and say, I wish I had done this or I wish I had done that. If you've never competed, go compete. You know, if you've never stepped out of your comfort zone, um, step out of your comfort zone. If you've never, go try a different martial art. You know, go go find another martial art, judo, uh, combat wrestling, something that's outside of your wheelhouse and see if it applies to you. Just, you know, put yourself in uncomfortable positions and that way you can look back on your on your life and be happy with the things that you did with it. So awesome. Thank you so much, Mitch. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. I want to thank Mitch Hall for jumping on the podcast, sharing his story, uh, <laughs> sharing some shady things that happened, but, uh, really, I think most of those type of days are, are behind us as a community, as a whole, for sure. We have listeners who are in similar situations that Mitch was in and, uh, and hope you get some guidance from, from him and what he went through. Really? Try to enjoy the mat. You know, maybe you're not getting the absolute best training you could possibly get, but it's like, you know, the fishing quote we were talking about earlier. Still having a good time. That's that's fine. You know, if you wanted to go compete, you know, really, if you're competing, what are you looking for? Are you looking for a challenge or, you know, self-development? You want to test your skills uh, and then put that through the lens of, of your training environment and, and how you're getting better. Kind of like the fishing quote we talked about earlier today, guys. Yeah, some some people may have a different opinion. It depends on where you're at in your jujitsu journey. But I would rather go to a, a gym that had a mediocre, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but you know, a mediocre instruction and a great environment and great teammates than go someplace that has a great instructor and, and everybody's got a bad attitude. And you got to worry about your safety and and all that stuff all the time. That's just me. 
Yeah, that's why I don't train with Byron anymore, Joe. <laughs> uh, I hear you. My, my whole my whole plan. One of these days, we're going to open up a BJJ Brick uh, school and and teach jiu-jitsu there. Man, that would be amazing. But the but my real thing about it is it'll be a, a frozen uh, ice cream machine uh, in the back where you get to have a cone after a good day of training. And people like me are suckers for a free ice cream cone. <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad it will be frozen ice cream as opposed to the other options that are out there. <laughs> Thank you. Soft serve is what I meant to say. Oh man! So, some days on the nail, that's for sure. But uh, thanks to Mitch for for jumping on here and sharing this story. And if that's something that rings with you, or maybe you got a buddy who's kind of in a tight spot with with the uh, awkward training environment. Share the episode with him. Send him in episode 255. Have him listen to Mitch. And uh, you know, sometimes it's easier to see it in somebody else. And like, you know what? That's kind of like what I'm in right now. And uh, help him out, if at all possible. And you help us out by sharing the, sto- the podcast. So that ain't so bad yeah, either. Absolutely. If you're listening to this, it's probably because you like jujitsu. And if you like jujitsu, you probably have friends that like jujitsu as well. So. Tell them about the podcast. Uh, maybe share a, share a link to an episode and uh, help us grow the show. Hey guys, just wanted to quickly say that uh, Gary and I train in Wichita, Kansas. If you're coming through the area or in the area, we'd love to train with you and uh, get some mad time with you. Just send us a message at bjjbrick at gmail.com or message us on the Facebook uh, page there. Joe, where could they find you on the mats if they want to try choking a Joe? Yeah, I'm I'm south of Houston, so if you're traveling through the area, uh, hit me up, and I'd love to train with you. Houston is not the vacation destination of America or the uh, entertainment uh, center like Wichita is, but it's still a pretty nice place. So come on down and let's do some jujitsu. You can tell Joe's definitely an ambassador for Wichita, Kansas. <laughs> I spent a weekend there once. <laughs> an extended once weekend is the key word. <laughs> Gary, what do we have for the article of the week? Uh, We have an awesome article this week. We have a link to it in the show notes, but it's uh, the 10 Principles of Grappling by Luther Leva Master Roberto Leitao. Is that how you say his name, Nailed it, Gary. Yeah. I nailed it. Yeah. Hey, this, I will say, uh, is one of the better articles I've read. And I was telling Joe earlier I hadn't read it as we were – started this show but i've been reading it uh kind of as we're going along you know like people like joe and i we can do two things at once byron he uh has trouble trying to do two things at once he's sometimes i have trouble doing one thing at once (laughs) yeah we've noticed we've noticed but man this this article is like a bunch of quotes by a legend i mean and they all pertain to you know what we're gonna what we're doing on the mat and uh you know like quote number one if I don't know, I will not allow. And basically what he's saying is if, if you're in a position that you don't know what's happening, if your opponent's trying to do something to you, don't let him do it. <laughs> <laughs> he's basically, you know, let's say you train at your gym all the time and you know what to expect from the guys at your gym. You learn everything uh, from your instructor. And so you guys kind of all learn the same stuff. But so you go to a a tournament and you get somebody who, like Byron was talking this morning to me about how he doesn't really have a half guard. And let's just say Byron's school, there's not a single person who uses half guard there. 
and I get uh, to this tournament, and the first guy I draw is from Tom DeBlaster School, and he pulls half guard on me, and he's trying to do something to me. I don't really know what he's doing, but if he's doing it, there's a purpose for it. Do not let him do it. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It, when when your opponent's got a cross-collar grip and they're trying to get that grip deeper and deeper, don't, don't let them get it. You might not exactly see what they're trying to do, but they're trying to do something that's not going to be good for you. If they're isolating an arm, they're trying to pull it across your center line. You might be new enough that you don't really understand why that's bad, but trust me, it's bad, and, and don't let them do it. And then the next level in this is when you're the more experienced guy and you're training with the people that are just starting to incorporate this into their game, then you can start to use it against them, and you start to pull the arm across to get a reaction out of them, and that's kind of a next-level thing. But uh, that first point is really good. Yeah, if you end up confused, just try to reverse-engineer what they're doing and try to stop them from doing what they appear to want to do. That's better than nothing, because when you're confused, you're in a lot of trouble at that point in time. Point number two is awesome, too. A systematic repetition is always dangerous. If I keep doing the same thing over and over again, you know, we talk about we need to surprise, kind of like what Joe was just talking about. If I keep pulling that arm across my body, sooner or later, the higher level guy is wanting to get a reaction. Um, but if I keep doing the same thing over and over again, that my opponent is going to know what's happening and pretty soon he's going to reverse it on me. So uh, do not, you know, your, your opponent's going to anticipate it. He's going to know it's coming. He's going to counter it. So, uh, you know, throw, mix stuff up, throw different uh, techniques, sweep attempts, uh, whatever else uh, into, into, into it. Yeah. Look, going down a little further, further on the list, uh, point number five here reminds me of what Gary was talking about a few weeks ago. Intelligent movement is a continuous movement. Uh, keep on moving. Keep on just stay active. That's uh, sometimes I have the, the problem with just kind of holding position for a little while, thinking about what I'm doing. Uh, but once once you know what you should be doing, like Gary was saying a, a while back, do it. There's no reason to wait. There's no reason to, to hold off on things. Keep moving. Uh, that's usually a smarter play. And it's hard to be like two steps ahead of somebody when you're stepping super slow. If, uh, you know, Gary passes, he goes to attack, you know, and Gary's not playing a point game either. But uh, so, so there's, there's room to, to say, yeah, you get your points and then attack. But uh, Gary's attacks are, are fast and they're transitional. And it's because he's moving intelligently and continuously. Is that accurate, oh, Gary? Thank you, Byron. Did yeah, you, you use Gary and intelligent in the same sentence. I don't think I've ever heard that before in my uh, sorry. whole life. Intelligent. <laughs> Gary okay. is very intelligent. That makes more sense. <laughs> with his with his fancy education and all. <laughs> so moving further down the list, I really like point number eight. Uh, if you did not conquer the position, be suspicious of it. And I think uh, maybe a simpler way to put that is if, if something seems like it's coming too easy, especially if you're rolling with somebody with more experience than you, it's most likely a trap. And I'm thinking a couple things that I like to do. I like to do the lasso guard. You, you do the lasso with your left leg, and then you kind of uh, hide the right leg and just make the guard pass look like it's wide open, and then you can turn that into a sweep. Or you can uh, set up a, a baseball bat choke from the guard and, and let your opponent start to pass your guard and then turn that into a, a submission. And so at, at, when you're rolling with somebody that's more experienced than you and it looks too easy, it's probably trouble. Definitely. Uh, 
I like number 10. 10, I can tell you, I've experienced myself. Uh, Byron and I used to roll with this guy named D, and uh, he hadn't as he hadn't been rolling as long as us, but he came onto the scene and, and really figured it out. He was uh, tapping people left and right, and uh, he was very good at leg locks, one of the first people around doing leg locks. And uh, basically what number 10 says, you must always do something. If you don't do anything, your opponent will be more efficient in his tax, but he does not need to worry about yours. When I first started rolling with D, the one thing I realized was he's very, very aggressive. Kind of like what Byron was just saying, he would pass, and during his transition, he'd go straight into a submission. There was no uh, getting position, waiting, you know, getting your count to three get your points and then start attacking he just jumped right on something and when i first started rolling he just tapped me out left and right and he he was a very good teacher for me even though i had more years of experience on the mat he taught me a lot of stuff and you know one thing that he really taught me and i remember him telling me one day is like he's like man i just try to attack and attack and attack and he's like as long as i'm attacking that guy is defending and he's not allowed to attack while I'm attacking. And he's like, if, if I just keep going offensive, he's not going to be coming at me offensive. And, and man, that was one of the biggest things I learned. And, uh, you know, I appreciate D teaching that to me. And, and I noticed like later on, I would start trying to be really aggressive with him instead of just being worried about what position I'm going to get put in and how I'm going to get out of stuff. And I performed a lot better against him once I did that. And he, I mean, he'd still dominate me, but, uh, it really, uh, really changed my my thinking, and and I saw it really worked. Yeah. Speaking of continually attacking, I don't know that that's just like a switch you can flip on if it's something you aren't already doing. And we always talk at the beginning of the show about two audio books that uh, Byron's written, and one of them is six games uh, in BJJ that you can play. And you've got one in there, Byron, if I remember correct, that's just like you just go out and you just go for the submissions. You might not be in the perfect position to get it. Your your chances of finishing it might be pretty low, but you just go for one after the other after the other. And and in my mind, that's a great practice tool to use so that this can become part of your game. Yeah, and it's been isn't a while. That the one you, yeah, isn't that the one you call carpet bombing, Byron? <laughs> <laughs> I think I call it the Nike method. Just do it. Okay. Uh, but part of that process is to kind of index your techniques that you that you're comfortable with and, and that you know what to do. So let's say I have uh, Joe in my guard, and all I could really think about is, you know, I want to do a triangle to Joe. Oh yeah, I could have an armbar, but. Before I get to class, I need to look. Okay, triangle, arm, arm, plata, uh, guillotine, arm and guillotine. I got a couple. I got this sweep. I got a butterfly sweep. I could uh, arm drag the guy. I could. So just running through like the index of techniques that you're confident with that you should be doing. And as you're rolling, just start just roll through that rolodex. Roll through the rolodex. That's pretty good of techniques. And just anyone that could apply, throw it at them and see if it if it sticks a little bit. And uh, I think that, that's. That's a, a, a neat way to train and a neat way to find some moves that you might be kind of okay at and figure out, hey, you know what? I'm actually pretty good at this technique right here just by just by throwing it at the at the opponent more often. And, you know, the, this has been a great list. We definitely didn't cover all of them because you've heard us skip <laughs> numbers, uh, and there's a lot more to the article than just that. Man, that, that's a really cool article. There'll be a link in the show notes. And speaking of articles, if any of – our listeners there have a blog, write articles about jujitsu. Send us an email, 
bjjbrick at gmail.com. Send us a link to your article. We love to uh, use articles of uh, people who listen to our show. Isn't that right, Joe? That's absolutely correct. You might get 15 minutes of fame out of it. (laughs) (laughs) What I'm mentioning is that that's actually how we met Joe. Joe uh, was writing articles about jujitsu and sent them in to us. And we talked about it and he sent us another one. We brought him on air. And next thing you know, uh, Joe has taken over the number two spot on the BJJ brick team and moved me down to the third spot. So, um, you know, you never know. Joe used to walk down the streets and nobody knew who he was. Now, when he walks down the street, people throw rocks at him. <laughs> yeah. They, they think I'm, I'm that Gary guy's friend and that, that gets me in trouble every time. <laughs> You've got the the one and only uh, Gary T-shirt that you wear all the time, and that just kind of calls you out. Yeah. But you know what he always does to offer peace is he hands out one of my autographed pictures that uh, you guys made that we give to our Patreon supporters. Um, You know, Patreon, uh, we have a link to it on the show notes. There's no way we could keep this show going without our supporters of Patreon. Um, A lot of people, uh, the average donation is a buck per show, and it really helps us out. It's allowed us uh, basically from flying Joe to Wichita to meet him, to having uh, some live shows uh, with Rolly Delgado, Tim Sled. It helped us put on our BJJ Brick event. Uh, one time our website got hacked by a porno site, <laughs> and uh, we would have never uh, been able uh, to okay, get that. Okay. Transvestite yes. porn site. Okay. Gotta I mean, we would have never got that uh, fixed <laughs> without the support. So, uh, um, you know, the crazy thing is when we did get hacked like that, it was the most hits we've ever had. You know, so... <laughs> At that point when uh, Byron and I and, and Joe, we were in a meeting about where to take the show. And, you know, my thing was like, hey, man, we're getting a ton of hits, you know, with this uh, porn site. Maybe we should go down that path. But uh, I'm glad Byron and Joe talked me out of it. Yeah, Gary. That's about the that's about the time you went exclusively no-gi, right, Gary? <laughs> <laughs> or not no-gi, but no-no-gi. Yeah. yeah. No-no-gi, yeah. So... Uh, yeah, we've had some hurdles, and to say the least, <laughs> but uh, we're fortunate we had our Patreon supporters, uh, a handful of them, uh, backing us back when we had some troubles. And I, you know, part of the thing about that, the the big uh, getting hacked, was it was frustrating. It was like we worked so hard on this, and it just got turned to nothing, literally overnight. Somebody sent me an email: "Hey, man, your site's been hacked." Uh, you might want to pull it down. I go, I'm like, oh, man, it has been hacked. Uh, whatever Gary was doing somehow leaked over to the site. <laughs> and uh, I just pulled it off the Internet. And I was like, I don't want people to go to my site and find uh, that sort of material uh, that they're not looking for intentionally anyway. And uh, then we had to, like, is this, you know, we got an episode to do within a week here. Are we going to want to fix the site? Like, like, is it worth it? And... Uh, you know, it's not just financial, it's also the pat on the back we get from the Patreon supporters. I want to give a quick shout out to uh, Craig, Brad, and Greg, uh, some of our Patreon supporters from the uh, for quite a while now. And uh really appreciate your support, guys. If you do support us on Patreon, we'll send you out a 5-inch BJJ Brick Gee Patch, a sticker. You'll be invited to the uh, private Facebook group. If you send me an email telling me that you have Facebook, that helps out a ton. And... Uh, Still questionable, but we probably will still have a couple of pictures of autographs of Gary fully closed that we could mail out to you uh, with your gee patch. 
Yeah, the picture's going quick, guys, so make sure. And uh, if you're going to get on that uh, train, get on it now. <laughs> uh, sorry. Okay, I got it. Guys, we've talked uh, about a lot of different topics today in the show. And let's roll on over to the uh, audiobook and development portion of the show where uh, we're working on an audiobook that probably will never get produced. Why? Because it's a terrible idea. But we have fun batting around the idea of what it would be like. And this week, uh, we're working on the idea of jujitsu and fishing. You know, grappling in a boat and catching fish all at the same time. You know, it's there's only a, a certain number of techniques you could use. Joe's got a lot of experience uh, being out on the water. And, uh, and Gary and I are basically just dead weight on this one here. Except for one of my mount escapes involves the technique going fishing where you catch the the foot with your ankle and you pull it back into your uh, kind of like a deep half and uh, other than that fishing is tough on jiu-jitsu hard to do in a boat I don't really want to get thrown overboard with a big sweep but uh, this is an interesting boat really geared at trying to help out those on the on the boat you know you're the last one you're drawing last straws and you gotta grapple for it guys yeah absolutely you know uh my commercial fishing days were all about big nets and, and lots of fish, but that's not how most people fish. And uh, People use a hook and a line, and, and from what I hear, and I'm going to throw this over to Gary because I think he's the expert, but from what I hear, it's all about having the right bait. Tell us about that, Gary. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, it, you don't want to have anything too big because um, a lot of times the fish can't eat it. Um, so you definitely <laughs> want to... <laughs> You definitely want to, you know, the right size. So, you know, so bait is very important. But, you know, what really got me into, you know, getting fishing and, you know, martial arts together, um, you know, on a boat there was a good buddy of mine, a guy I grew back, grew up with him back in uh, New Jersey. Uh, he moved out to California, uh, you know, because his mom got a job at a restaurant. But uh, my good buddy, uh, Daniel LaRusso, uh, basically he was training uh, – at Miyagi-Do Karate, and one of the things they used to do to work on his balance is Mr. Miyagi would go fishing, and uh, Mr. LaRusa would stand on the boat, practice his kata, and really it helped him with his balance. I mean, the guy had only been training about three months, and he just did private lessons. He didn't even do regular classes, just private lessons, and he won the All-Valley Championship, you know, just a few months later, uh, just because of using techniques like that, working on his balance. So I saw how well it worked. So, uh, you know, I, I would put the floaties on and I would go out on uh, put a boat out in the, in the, the lake and try it myself. And, uh, you know, I almost drowned a couple of times, but my balance did get better. I mean, I'm nowhere near LaRusso's category, but uh, it really helped my game. Yeah, and those guys in the skeleton costumes aren't picking, picking on you so much anymore, Kerry. Yeah, I mean, I really don't get picked on anymore ever since I... Uh, uh, got fourth place in a four-person uh, uh, bracket at yeah. the All Valley. And another thing, <laughs> fish-related is uh, some of us have been known to kind of have a particular odor with us when we come to the train, and that's frowned upon. You want to at least smell uh, neutral. It's not kind of nice and flowery, you know, it's kind of nice to have, but uh, Gary's had been so bad that I took a dead fish and I put it in his gym bag and people started trading with him again because it was actually an improvement uh, <laughs> over what had been working on. 
Definitely an improvement. I noticed I had a lot more people wanting to train with me. And and Joe has been known to give crabs to people um, that he's trained only, with. Only big ones, though. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I mean, there's a lot of different methods, like Joe was talking about fishing. I mean, we can, uh, you know, fish with a net. Um, you know, we can uh, use a hook. We can just throw a treble hook in and try to snag stuff. And, you know, a lot of people consider that dirty. Or, I mean, we always have that guy who's really explosive, you know, on the jiu-jitsu match. It's just kind of crazy. That's the guy who fishes with dynamite. You know, there's all those different store, different ways to fish. And, uh, you know, your your style on the mat will probably tell you how you fish. Joe, how, how yes, uh, sir. commercially, how did you catch crabs? <laughs> this sounds <laughs> crazy. Was it a cage thing or how's that work? Yeah, we we call them pots, but yeah, it's a it's a round cage. They they weigh about a hundred pounds a piece. Check this out. They weigh a hundred pounds a piece, and you handle four or five hundred of those pots every day while you're fishing. You pull it up from the bottom of the ocean. You throw it on the table. You flip it over. You flip it back over, and you throw it back in the ocean. But the way Joe got really good at, at you know training UFC was back in those days. <laughs> you know, you're talking about those pots. But what Joe, you know, because it, it's a cage, like you said, a 100-pound cage. Yeah. And what Joe and his uh, crewmates used to do is they would lock two people, two men enter, one man leave. And that's how they got, you know, good at fighting. You know, they practiced a lot in those cages. Oh, you bet. Yeah, and, and we'd get in the cage and then they'd launch it. And you, <laughs> you, you, you either win the fight and get out or you're crab bait. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, but a lot of times, though, you know they wouldn't bait those they would put the two people in and if you won you got out and then you throw it over but kind of like what i went back to earlier a lot of times if you had a had a human in there who was the guy who didn't you know wasn't the guy who left you wouldn't catch any crabs in that pot because the bait was too big kind of like what we were talking about a little bit earlier you know those those crabs could not eat a uh or a, a full-size human being well you know on every crab boat there's uh a, a one guy who it's his job to take out the bait can out of the old out of the pot and put a new bait can in and you've got to chop up the bait and put it in the bait can and then put the new bait can in and uh we thought about hiring gary to do that job when we were fishing he's a master he's a master (laughs) (laughs) or or we were going to hire him to work on our long line boat where you have to put the bait on the hooks because we thought he could do that job and he could be the head hooker. <laughs> you know, uh, going back to the, being the master baiter. Uh, <laughs> so I'm getting ready to go to jiu-jitsu this morning. And uh, I've got a couple bad wrists, so I'm, I'm taping my wrists up. <laughs> I, I'm taping my wrists up before I leave. And my wife goes to me, do you tape those before you go to bed? Like, it's pretty bad when my wife is making jokes about me. Nice. That's pretty good. I like that style. I like our style. Yeah, yeah. Everybody picks on me, but I'm used to it. That's why I trained jujitsu. Why I started because uh, I wanted to beat people up who made fun of me. But then I realized, you know, that wasn't the fish I was fishing for. Yeah. And the real and the real reason people don't bully Gary on the streets anymore is because he never took that fish hook out of his face. <laughs> Went fishing. Would and you mess with that guy? <laughs> exactly. And the bad thing is. It's a treble hook, <laughs> and all three hooks are stuck somewhere. 
and he's completely and it's still got the and it's still got the original bait. <laughs> well, it's just a skeleton now, but it's still there. <laughs> oh man! Hey guys, uh, next week we have our end of the month episode. I haven't talked with you guys about this at all, but we'll see how it flies. I think it'll be interesting to talk about challenges we've faced uh, with jujitsu. And so uh, get, here's your warning now. Uh, think about sometimes that jujitsu was hard or uh, something uh, about jujitsu uh-huh. was difficult and, and how you got through that because we're still here today. And we'll share those with, with the audience and, and see kind of what we come up with. So think of a couple of stories, guys. I know that jujitsu hasn't been a smooth sail. Uh, sailing adventure the entire time for anybody uh, and, and we've got many many years of experience on the mat together and uh, combined we'll have some interesting things we come up with I know I face some challenges on the mat one of them is Gary and I've defeated his stench by putting a dead fish in his gym bag <laughs> 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 so you're all on notice think about some some tough times in jiu-jitsu and how you overcame those and uh, we'll hear we'll share those next week guys uh, check us out on social media. We've got Facebook, YouTube. Uh, we're not active on Twitter. <laughs> we're not active on a lot of things that we have, but uh, we're there. Uh, Reddit. So somebody tagged us on Reddit the other day, and I, I check Reddit less than once a week, but sometimes I check it a couple times a day, and hey, we've been tagged. So that was kind of fun. And uh, kind of jumped in that conversation we were invited into, and that was, that was good. And uh, so it's always good to meet new people, and social media is a great way to do that. But uh, we'll catch you guys next week. Stay sweaty, my friends. And don't forget to shower. Train hard, train smart, get better, and uh, we'll see you on the mats, guys. Yep, and we're and hoping. Don't forget, the, don't forget the BJJ Brick app. Nice. I'm just going to say we're hoping Gary doesn't wear out his wrists next, to, uh, next week. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. I hope you find the time today to roll. After all, the best way to get better at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is to do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I still couldn't believe my wife said that to me as I'm going to Jiu-Jitsu this morning. Uh, did, did you did you tell her you only tape your wrist before bed if you're working on your grip training? <laughs> that well, I'll use that next time. Hey Gary, this is easy. Yeah. Tape your wrist before you go to bed tonight. I good. I will. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm checkmate. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>